Uh, glad that you're here. We welcome our satellites and those who catch us online and in groups, whatever it might be. Um, may God's word come alive for all of us. I'm not clever enough to make a difference, but the Holy Spirit is really powerful enough to change all of us. And so that's our prayer. Many times in my life, many times, I've been standing there when a friend of mine introduced me to someone. And they'll say, this is Kathy. She's a good friend of mine. She's one of the wisest people I know. I just wanted to share that before I got started. So, so in this ongoing study of Exodus, they asked me today to talk about humility. I think I know why. Um, but our study this week, in your books, you realize that we're in Deuteronomy 8. Even though we're still doing Israel in the, their Exodus journey. But Deuteronomy 8 um, is a, a really, really long speech by Moses. Because Israel is now, they find themselves at the Jordan River, ready to cross into the Promised Land. Now they've been here once before, you'll remember. But they didn't trust that they could move into the land God had promised, that the giants were too big, the people were too big. It just, they couldn't do it. And so God, because of their lack of faith, let them wander in the desert for 40 years until that generation who had no faith died away. And now a new generation is standing there on the shores of the Jordan. Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land because of a little sin thing that happened between he and God. He got an attitude. But Moses, these are his people. I mean, you have to realize Moses has been, I mean, literally, if ever there were a father figure, Moses has loved and corrected and wanted to kill these people many times because they were so human. But Moses now, he goes up by himself. He's going to go up by himself on a mountain where he can look into the promised land and then he's going to die. That's Moses' story. But Israel, with Joshua will be their new leader. Israel's all together, and they're facing now the promised land that is filled with their enemies. So Moses starts this really, really long speech that is the book of Deuteronomy. And in essence, in this book, he, he recites back. He says, remember. Now, in the first seven chapters uh, leading up to what we're going to talk about, Moses um, tells them that goodbye to them, goodbye. Um, and his parting words are a reminder of all God has done and a challenge as to who they'll have to be and what they'll have to do in order to take the promised land. Israel has already broken out of Egypt. They spent a year at Sinai, remember, receiving the covenant, the Ten Commandments, and the whole covenant that was long. Um, and also the plans for the tabernacle, so that the presence of God would travel with them. They've been through a lot. This has been a, a rich time. 40 years of wandering in the desert. So Moses begins to tell them, this is where you've been. And this is what God has done along the way. So in chapter 8, Moses starts talking and he says, I want you to remember everything God has done. Obey God, grow in number, enter and fill the land. That's the promise. So he's reminding them of the promise, and he's saying, now, don't back down like your parents did. 
stand. Because it's like, just move it. Believe the promise. Remember what God has done. That's the fuel. That is there, if you will, because they're not an army. They're these nomads that have been wandering around eating manna. And they're going in and they're going to have to fight. So they're not an army prepared. But their greatest weapon in war is going to be that they remember their God. That's going to get them out of a lot of trouble. And when they don't, it's going to get them into a lot of trouble. So Moses says, remember all God has done. And then in verse 10, this is a very interesting, I think, way that he puts it. He says, when you've eaten your fill, because remember, there's going to be milk and honey and all the stuff they need here. When you've eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good things he has given you, for the good land he has given you. So he's saying now, when it gets really good, don't forget to thank God. The overarching caution throughout this eighth chapter, throughout most of Moses' speech actually, has been that God has worked to humble them. He says, now God has humbled you. And you need to be careful that you don't become prideful. That's kind of the theme that runs through this eighth chapter of Deuteronomy. So I pulled out a few verses. Now, I took these from the New Century version because the one thing that's different in the New Century, it's basically the same thing, but in most of the other versions that I read, translations, it says, God humbled you when? God humbled us when? At New Century, it says, God took our pride when? And I like this as he took our pride, which means that's what they were moving into. He didn't just take them and say, I'm going to humble you. He took their pride. So let's start with verse 2. It says this. You can see it on the screen. Remember how the Lord your God has led you in the desert for these 40 years, taking away your pride by testing you because he wanted to know what was in your heart. He wanted to know if you would obey his commands. That 40 years was not just punishment. It was basic training for what it meant to be the people of God. To take this nation, a couple million people, what theologians believe, and take them from being slaves, having a slave mentality. I don't get to choose where I go, what I do. I can't, I won't, I can't, I won't. And he's building them into a people who make decisions, who trust him, who do have a king, but it's a, it's a theocracy, it's a God king, not a person king. And he's been teaching them this all along. So he says, God took away your pride testing you because he's the most powerful and wanted to show you. No, he wasn't rubbing their nose in anything. It says, testing you because he wanted to know what was in your heart. And along the way, I'm guessing they learned what was in their own hearts, right? He wanted to know if you would obey his commands because obeying his commands, by the way, ladies, is the only way they were going to enter the promised land. We know the rest of the story, so we know that that's true. Verse 3 says, He took away your pride when he let you get hungry and then fed you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had ever seen. This was to teach you that a person does not live on bread alone, but by everything the Lord says. He took away your pride when he let you get hungry. I always find that, because twice we'll read this, where he says that not even your ancestors knew what it was. And I thought, I mean, things in the Bible are usually there for a purpose. And I always found that intriguing. And realized then that what God is saying, like, you can't think you're so clever that you went out and gathered manna just like your grandpa told you they used to do. Or 
that nature, like, well, the natural flow of nature, I've seen something similar to this before where bread shows up on the desert floor. <laughs> he says, nobody's ever seen this. Man, I think it was Coley who mentioned a couple weeks ago that this means like, what's this? So it's like, it's like woke up and it's like, what's this? We've never seen it. And that's why they called it manna. But this manna, it humbled them because there's no way they could have made it happen. No way. And there had to be obedience in the way they gathered it and used it or it didn't work. So it's, it's God taking away their pride by teaching them that his way is the way of life. Jumping down into verses uh, 11 through 16, Moses goes on to say, Be careful not to forget the Lord your God so that you fail to obey his commands, laws, and rules that I'm giving to you today. When you eat all you want and build nice houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, when you have everything, when you have more of everything, when, 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 then, verse 14 says, then your heart will become proud. You will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt where you were slaves. He led you through the large and terrible desert that was dry and had no water, that had poisonous snakes and stinging insects. He gave you water from a solid rock. That's not done often. He's reminding them of, of the power of their God. And manna to eat in the desert. Manna was something your ancestors had never seen. In case you didn't get when I said the first time a few verses ago, there. And then he says, he did this to take away your pride, your self-sufficiency, your uh, independence, your self-preservation. God did these things, <clears throat> excuse me, to take those away, to take away your pride, to test you so that, what? Things would go well for you in the end. That's God's whole plan. He didn't humble them to prove they were nothing and he was something. He said, people, I built this machine. I built people. I built this nation. I chose you. The way that it will end well for you, all the things I've promised will be realized is if you will walk my way and obey me. And that was the process of taking away their pride. Moses' lessons from the wilderness center on a right relationship with God, which means a right understanding of who's who and who isn't who, of who's God and who is not. C.J. Mahaney in his book on humility says this, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Now, if I were to ask you, is God truly holy? Yes. Are you sinful? Yes. We believe that. But in circumstances where we're making decisions, when we're holding to things because we are afraid God won't give us what we want, are we really believing that God's way is best? That his holiness makes him the smartest one in the room? And that our sinfulness always has a personal, self-satisfying, self-gratifying bent to it? So in this definition of humility, always by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's the only way we can do it, by the way always with a deeper and growing understanding of God's incredible holiness and our sinfulness. Usually we think of a humble person as someone with kind of no opinion. I don't care. You are so humble. Where do you want to eat? I don't care. They act beaten down with a dash of hopelessness and we call them humble. Great job on that. Oh, I didn't do anything special. I love your voice. Oh, this whole thing. 
did you draw that picture? No, huh? I couldn't. You're sitting there with paper and a pencil in your hand. Of course you do the picture. And so often we do that in the name of humility. And that has nothing to do with what God wants for us. It's, that's not it. In reality, humility is what can be called appropriate smallness. It's appropriate smallness. It's not being ground down. It's appropriate smallness. When we look at Israel's story and Moses' challenge to them, he keeps saying, remember. Remember who broke you out of Egypt. Remember who fed you. Remember who defeated your enemies. Remember who forgave you. Remember who gave us the covenant that, that offers us a national identity with God as our head. Remember, remember, remember. Why? Because that's appropriate smallness. Remember who did it. God did it. And then that, ideally, evokes a humility in us, an understanding of, oh my goodness, that should make me want to worship. Remember, 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 so you don't become prideful. When we forget what God has done, we begin to think, dude, I'm even more awesome than I thought. Sometimes I amaze myself. Moses says, be careful. And the Bible tells us the same thing in so many ways. Be careful. In Proverbs 16, 18, it says, Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. I'd break that out in the Hebrew for you, but what it means is pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. It's pretty direct. In Psalms 101.5, it says, I will not tolerate people who slander their neighbors. I will not endure conceit and pride. I will not endure it. Slandering your neighbors. That doesn't seem like a big sin. I mean, they're not the best neighbors. They don't keep their property up like I do. That's right there. I will not tolerate people who slander their neighbors. I will not endure conceit and pride. Proverbs 11.2. Pride leads to disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 29.23. Pride ends in humiliation, while humility brings honor. 1 John 2.16. For the world offer, offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. That's what the world offers. If ever there was a verse that reflects our culture today, it's that. It goes on to say, these are not from the Father, but are from the world. And yet those are the very things we struggle with every day, and that our culture tells us is our right. It says that's your right. These are not from the Father. Bottom line, God does not like pride because it ruins his kids. It messes us up. What does pride look like for us? Is it just bragging? Is it building our own I am awesome website with lots of testimonials that we wrote about ourselves? Yes, that is pride. But it's more than just that. There's a boxing promoter named Don King who... Uh, was very full of himself and famously said one time, I never cease to amaze my own self. And I say that humbly. We do it all the time. But we do it more sneaky. He just didn't have the filter to say that sounds odd. We do it other ways. But pride shows itself in so many ways that don't seem as direct. I want to give you four. The first is this. Pride shows itself in vanity. 
a preoccupation with how others perceive me. That'd be my public image, my appearance, my status. Vanity is a kind of self-promotion that is always working on how things appear, how I am perceived, physical, social, financial, relational, even spiritual. That we work to make sure we are perceived in a good way. Vanity makes image the primary value, a stance that does not line up with God. A second way that pride shows itself is in stubbornness. What? No. Yeah. Stubbornness is that pride that refuses to be corrected or confronted. It's a defensiveness that does not allow for our own brokenness or frailty or limits. Stubbornness keeps us, stubbornness makes us unable to stop defending ourselves. If you are stubborn, you have to defend yourself because you can't receive correction. If you're married, you might have seen this once or twice. You think I'm talking about your husband. What about when he wants to say something about you? That's where I'm going with it. When someone like corrects you, and everything you, you I, I mean, maybe you guys are holier than I am, but it can just rise up. It can just, and, but I'm thinking my face, because you go back to like vanity, and so I can't let my face look stubborn. So I'm trying to look gentle, but inside I'm going, and so it's like, there's conflict here. Pride catches us from a lot of directions. Vanity, stubbornness. Another one is exclusion. At its core, pride excludes God from his rightful place in our life. Isn't that a bummer? Because it's true. It's such a bummer because it's so true. Again, think about appropriate smallness. It also excludes other people from their rightful place in our lives and in our hearts. Mark 12:30 says, "You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength." We know that verse. To do that requires humility because we have to lay down our own self-promotion, our self-protection, all the things that start with self and to trust God with those things. Pride also does not allow us to give others such a place of honor or respect that we would love them as much as ourselves. Pride destroys our capacity to fully love God and to fully love others. And that leads to the fourth way that pride shows itself, and that's in comparison. See, the reason, going back up to exclusion, the reason I can't invite everybody is because I'm comparing myself to them. Whether I think I'm superior or not superior, I'm inferior to them, still comparison. It is a kind of self-absorption that causes us to compare ourselves to others. Whether we come out ahead or behind, comparison is trying to manage our status or our image. Comparison, it'll shoot us in the foot every time. It never works toward love and unity. Comparison never works toward love and unity. In his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, John Ortberg says this, Pride means not only that we want to be smart and wealthy, but also that we will not be satisfied until we are smarter and wealthier than those around us. Pride is essentially comparative in nature. That is so true. Have you ever been content in something? 
Like say your house. Oh, I love my house. It's, I just I have a great house. Then I go visit somebody at their house. It's like, oh, look at that kitchen. I love that kitchen. And then you get home, you look at the kitchen and go, my kitchen. We do it with everything. We do it with body shape. I mean, we're different. Did you notice? We're really different. Every, there aren't any two of you that look exactly alike. And yet we compare. I should be taller. I should be shorter. I should be wider. I should be narrower. I should be lighter. I should be darker. It's comparison. And it never leads to love and unity. It never makes a place for gratitude in our hearts to God for who we are or for anybody else's. Comparison will always hurt us. Think about how pride impacts every one of your relationships. Spouses. How can you love, encourage, or value your spouse, your husband, if you keep score? If you're comparing who won the last two fights, who got their way, who's meaner than the other one, all the things we call up, how can you have a relationship that is as intimate as marriage is when you refuse to humble yourself? Now, you understand me. I do, nothing I've said says that humility means that they always get their way. Whoever the they in any of these relationships. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about appropriate smallness, not abuse, not being discarded. I'm talking about a way to get to common ground, not a giving up of who you are. God made you. He likes you. He thinks you should be the way you are with some growth going on all the time. <laughs> but all of those things are good. Except in relationship, if we don't approach it with an understanding that God not only made us, but he made him and loves him and seems to think he's okay. I know, it's hard, but that's true. <laughs> with friends, are you getting enough attention from them? Do they like you best? Comparing. Do you need your friends to reflect your personal greatness? Are they being the kind of friends that make you look good? Or do you choose your friends on how the two of you together pursue Christ or reflect Christ? Your kids, whether we tell them that or not, how in the world can we fully love our children? if we are always concerned about how they look or perform as a reflection of how we are moms. Kindergarten. Whose little picture is that on the wall? Oh, that's little Tommy. He's really good. And your kid drew something that looks like a circle with a couple of lines coming out of it. You don't even know what it is. I'm sending her to art lessons. This is just not right. And that seems off the chart, and it is, but we do it in other ways. We expect our kids to all perform at some level that we've seen with, instead of letting them be different. And what does that? Our desire for them to be great? No, our desire for us to look good as moms. We do it to our kids, we do it to our husbands, we do it to our friends, we do it to coworkers, bosses, parents, pastors, church folks, neighbors, strangers. Pride impacts every relationship. Humility, appropriate smallness, is living in the truth of who we are and who God is. It is, as with Israel, remembering what God has done, 
what he is doing and what he has promised to do. That's the basis. If we can keep that, ladies, we have got a very good life. Pride is when we refuse to acknowledge our dependence on God, how much he loves us, that his plans for us are good, even when they don't make sense to us. That's humility. Humility, when you think about it, is actually a great relief. What if? What if you didn't have to be really, really smart? What if you didn't have to be really, really beautiful? What if you didn't have to be really, really holy or tall or short in order to matter? What if who you are and how you are is exactly what God intended and you can find favor in that? What if you weren't comparing yourself to everyone else, not to their by family or appearance or job or hair or shoes or thoughts or words? What if you loved and accepted yourself just as you are? I know it's a tall order. What if? Because that's possible. I've met a couple people who are really comfortable with themselves. It's just they are who they are. And it's not in a, in a don't care what you think kind of way. It's just kind of a presence. They're just okay with it. I have a grandson who's, who's that way. I don't know. He just is like, he's in college. And I asked him once, uh, I, forget, I asked him some question. He goes, well, Grammy, I don't care what they think. Like, I'm doing my best. I'm doing whatever. He goes, I don't care. And I thought, that's a novel concept. I have to think about that. What if we didn't have to be so concerned all the time if we're thin enough, if we're fashionable enough? What if? What if when you're with people you weren't preparing your next words or response but you were fully present and available? What if at your table when we leave here and you're discussing this with people, with the gals at your table, what if you didn't feel like you had to say anything holy? What if you didn't have to pretend you did the homework? What if? What if you just were? Wouldn't that be a relief? How would you feel if someone did this for you? If someone began to accept you? If someone listened to you without their own agenda? What if you could learn to listen more because you didn't have to keep your self-promotion updated? You didn't have some image. Humility is really the freedom to stop trying to be what we're not or pretending to be what we're not and accepting our appropriate smallness. In Martin Luther's words, humility is the decision to let God be God. When I was 10 or 11, I was in church, big church, boring, and the preacher was preaching. And, um, I was sitting there uh, with my two sisters. My younger sister had a kid's Bible, so uh, she wouldn't do anything with it, so I took it. I figured mom, I wouldn't get knuckled by my mom for not paying attention if I was reading the Bible, <laughs> mom. And so I was reading this Bible, so I was looking through it. Actually, I had pictures, so I was looking through some of the pictures. And I ran across this really intriguing picture of a king, two women, and a baby. Now, that seemed like an intriguing story. So I read this story. It turned out 
it was in First um, Kings, chapter 3. And it's the story of Solomon, one of the stories of Solomon. And it's not a long chapter. Basically, it says this, that Solomon was the king and he was, you know, everything was quite grand. And that God came to him in a dream and said, ask for anything and I'll give it to you. And when Solomon woke up in this dream, and then he was talking to God and he says, I want wisdom. Of everything out wisdom. And God was really pleased with his answer and gave him wealth and all the other things. But I remember in that 10, 11-year-old heart, I remember when I read that, and you need to know that, that my first 10 years were really chaotic. My father was an alcoholic who left and came back and left and came back. And um, there was alcoholism in, with my grandfather and stuff. There was sexual abuse. There was extreme poverty. There was a lot of hard work. Like, there's a lot of chaos in my first 10 years. And I'm reading this, and I had this deep, deep sense. It's like, I can't think of anything that would be better than knowing the right thing to do. Because in chaos, you never know where to speak up or shut up. Do you hide or do you not move? Do you, there's, in any of you grew up in chaotic households, there's some of this that happens inside, not intuitive, I mean, inside, not cognitively, but, but we just are always looking for safety. And I remember thinking, wisdom to me was like, what if I knew the right thing to do in every situation? And even now when I tell you that, I can feel my heart pound a little bit because it was so real to me. So I just said, God, if you ever ask me, I'm going to say wisdom. And then I didn't think about that again. I was in college, and I was sitting with a gal who was going through some really hard stuff, and we were just talking. And I remember I said a couple of things that I thought, that was really good. <laughs> Humility. <laughs> uh, but, <clears throat> but I remember thinking, oh, that was the perfect answer. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me. I just felt something in my heart, and God said to me, that's what you asked for when you were 10. And I thought, he answered my prayer. I mean, honestly, it's like, now I didn't immediately, like, you know, set up shop and say, if you want a, a wise answer, comes in. <laughs> but when we go back, when I started this talk, and I told you that I have friends, see, this is my good friend, Kathy. I really love her. She's one of the wisest people I know. Now, is there any basis for me to be proud of being wise? No. I didn't do anything. You see what I mean? It's like, do I, do I love it? I do, because every time someone says it, I feel like, oh God, you're so good. Now, I'm not this noble in everything. Please, I'm giving you a, a really good example about me. <laughs> but, but the thing is that when someone says, Kath, you're so wise, I feel this thing inside, like when I was a little girl, saying, God heard me, and he answered my prayer. God did this. And the other thing is, when I've been able to say things that help somebody, I think, God, you love them so much. I've been talking, this has happened more times than I care to admit, but I've been talking to people and they will say, um, oh my goodness, that was so good. Can you say that again? <laughs> what did I say? Because <laughs> it's not me being reasonable. It's like, oh, I said, yes, this is the conclusion I came to. Sometimes I'm talking, I just feel like God said something to them. You see what I mean? There is no boast. There's nothing to be proud of, but there's a lot to be grateful for because God answers prayer. Imagine for Israel if they could heed Moses' words, 
fully accept God's provision and promises without having to fend for themselves in every way, without having to, under their own power, conquer the promised land. What if they came to grips with the fact that God already had given it to them, and if they would do it his way, they would own it? And they did it in fits and starts. They had great successes, and they had great failures. But God, in his great patience, just kept moving taking them somewhere. Moses and his instructions felt the weight of God's glory and the weight of the importance that Israel remember and obey. Remembrance brings gratitude. Gratitude brings worship. And worship brings us appropriate smallness. It brings us humility. So today, ladies, remember. And when you remember the things God has done, take a minute, show grace, thank you, God. How amazing you could do that through me, in me, for me, whatever it would be. Thank you, God. And then worship, you are mighty, God. You are good and mighty. And I, I bend a knee because you are my God. Today, what if you could stop striving and struggling and working at being enough and understand that God says you are more than enough because you're mine and I have a plan. Pray with me. God, this is all so cool. This stuff is so cool and only you by your Holy Spirit can implant this truth in our heart. But Lord, I ask for me and I ask for this group of women and anyone else who's listening to my words Right at this moment, teach us to remember well what you've done, to see how you've orchestrated our lives, how you came through in the difficulties of life. Then, God, may we be women of gratitude and worship. And may the fruit of that be humility, our appropriate smallness. All by your power and grace, we pray this. Amen.